Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 449 of Writers Aloud. In Poetry Break, Karen Altenberg and Julia Copus discuss Face to Face and Solitude One by the late Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer, both translated by Robin Robertson. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund, and today's guest is the novelist, critic, tutor and translator Karin Altenberg. Karin was born and brought up in southern Sweden and holds a PhD in archaeology. Unsurprisingly, landscape has played a central part in her novels, which deal with the themes of unity and fracture amongst people existing on the edges of the world. Her first novel, Island of Wings, is set on the remote island of St Kilda in the early 19th century, and it was nominated for the Orange Prize, the Saltire Award and the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust Book Award. She is a non-fiction reviewer for the Wall Street Journal and the coordinator for the Royal Literary Fund's Bridge Programme in England. Karin is currently at work on a new novel that is set in Sweden, but written in English, which means she now finds herself in the interesting position of translating the voices of her Swedish characters that she hears in her head directly onto the page in English. I can think of no one better to talk to about the subject of today's poetry break, Swedish Nobel Laureate for Literature, Thomas Tranströmer. Karin, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Um, so this is actually a bit of a departure for Poetry Break because we'll be discussing two poems in translation today by the legendary Thomas Tranströmer. Um, and I, I think we should begin by just very briefly locating Tranströmer in terms of um, bare biographical details. Uh, and I hope that you will correct me if I get anything wrong. <laughs> so he was born in 1931 in Stockholm, uh, brought up mainly by his mother, a school teacher, after his parents divorced. He studied psychology and indeed worked as a psychologist and published his first book called 17 Poems in his 20s. But then am I right in thinking that it was his third book, The Half Finished Heaven, that really was his first big breakthrough certainly outside of Sweden. Yeah, I think um, his first book, I think he was 23, so very young, it was immediately popular in Sweden. But I think you're right that The Half-Finished Heaven in translation made his name in, in America in particular. Yeah, so we'll talk about translations uh, a fair bit during the podcast and uh, and the enormous amount of translators that he has had. Um, mm -hmm. I think the one other biographical fact that's important to mention at this point is that he suffered quite a major stroke when he was um, around 60, but that he carried on writing. Um, and then in 2011, so when he was 70, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Yes, that's right. And, you know, at last, we had all been waiting for this great moment. So I think everyone in Sweden was incredibly happy. And actually, I think it was a very popular decision all around the world as well. Yeah. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if uh, Swedish writers are at a slight disadvantage when it comes to the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, sort of ironically, yeah. because of their nationality. 
Yeah, I think definitely in, in Thomas's case, this was certainly the case that he had to wait an awful long time to win a prize that I think was due to him for many, many years. Yeah. Well, I know from our email exchange in preparation for this podcast that some of the Transtoma poems that you personally hold in highest esteem are his longer poems. Uh, so you mentioned Schubertiana and uh, the Baltics in mm-hmm. particular. Uh, but unfortunately, they are too long for the format of this podcast. But you do also have a deep admiration for many of his other poems, including this first one that uh, you've chosen to talk about, Face to Face, or I'll try and pronounce this, <laughs> Ansikte mot Ansikte. Is that roughly right? Very good. It's Ansikte mot Ansikte, yes. Okay, well, not that close, but <laughs> not too bad. Um, so... In a nutshell, if it's possible, what is it that you are drawn to in this particular poem? Not an easy question to answer. (laughs) Gosh, no, in a nutshell. Uh, Well, I mean, firstly, I think there's the natural landscape. Uh, That's that's the sort of obvious beginning of this poem uh, and how precisely it's described. And I think a lot of Swedes feel that Thomas has a way of describing our world, our landscape, our natural landscape through imagery, but also just the language that he uses. And I don't think the Swedish language is never as beautiful as it is in Thomas' poetry. Mm. But so this poem, which may seem a bit barren at first, perhaps, particularly if you're not used to that kind of Swedish wintry landscape, or even if you are, but the whole poem is really a metaphor for a sort of complex changing state of mind and that becomes clear yeah so to start with the basics what do you get from that first stanza i mean i love that soul chafing against the jetty where it's moored um, i should say that we're using uh, robin robertson's uh, translations to talk today about these poems and uh, and that's the way he puts it. And I just think that's wonderful. I think, I mean, Robin would actually call these versions rather than translations. But, yes. but in this case, the, the image here is pretty close to the Swedish. It's, it's in fact the same image. It's that sort of sense of entrapment or um, paralysis of the chafing soul um, that I suppose is introduced in the opening line in February, Life Stood Still. Mm-hmm. And you, you were talking about the bleakness of the Swedish landscape. I think here, this is something we can all feel, that kind of the, the numb closeness of a winter landscape and how mm. um, this kind of grating movement is something that I think we can all identify with if we've ever been in that place. Yes, And I think many or if not all of us have experienced that kind of stasis where it feels impossible to move. Mm. Um, Yeah, I I think the metaphors that Transtrema uses are very often startling um, and they're nearly always unexpected as they are in this poem. Um, So the mood of that second stanza, would you say it continues the mood of the first? Yes, I'd, I'd say it sort of deepens it. Yes. I mean, I, I think this poem is actually quite filmic as well. It's, I, mm. I could almost imagine it as a, a scene in a Tarkovsky film, the way it's, I mean, again, yes. this, this camera moving in on specific detail and then 
sort of panning out uh, into a panorama. So you move from this, this stubble poking through, you see that very clearly, and then suddenly you look out over a sort of expanse of something and you, you see these footsteps in the ice crust. Yes, that scene in the mirror. Is it a wheat field? Yes, yeah. Um, That's the beginning, isn't it? Yes, right, right at the start, yeah. So exactly that, very, very filmic, you're right. Uh, what do you make of that last line in the second stanza, in line eight, under a tarpaulin, language was being broken down? I think for me, when I read this poem, here's a poet at his desk who cannot write. I mean, you, you're sort of stuck mm. in so many ways. Mm. In the Swedish version, the language is kind of wasting away. It's slightly softer. So what's the verb there, Karen? Tynade. Tynade spoket. Where it's broken down, I think, is actually a very good uh, translation. It's, it's like a decomposition, isn't it? A decomposition, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. And so we are losing something. We're losing our language, our self, in this numb, closed world. Yeah. And I suppose in English, decomposition is the opposite of composition. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the reasons I like the fact that Robin has written them as versions, I suppose one thing you lose in translations is the exact music of the original language, but also that kind of hinterland behind each word. So where in English we get composition, decomposition, for example, mm -hmm. You have completely different backgrounds to specific words in Swedish. So, yeah, I think it's essential that the poem works in the daughter language, if you like to put it that way, yeah. as a poem in its own right. Yeah, and particularly in that middle stanza in the Swedish, there's a lot of very gloomy vowels like ors and ers. Uh, mm -hmm. That's impossible to render in English, but I think what Robin has done in terms of the tone of that stanza still carries a lot of that gloom across. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that you knew Thomas and were uh, lucky enough to get to talk with him. What stage of life was he at when you met him and when you also got to know his wife, Monica? I'm asking because I'm wondering whether you got the impression that Thomas saw the world in these very visual terms that he puts across in his poems. So I first met Thomas after the stroke. It's about 20 mm -hmm. years ago. And he um, he only had a few words then, actually. But, I mean, we still, and I don't know quite how this is possible, but we still had conversations. That's how I see it. It was still possible to have conversations with Thomas, yeah. uh, often with Monica's help. But when you pay attention to each other, you, you can communicate much more than you may think, even with fewer words. And so were you able to pick up from those limited word conversations and non-verbal conversations anything about his um, his way of looking at the world that was different from other people's? Um, in many ways, it was always very different to be with him and talk to him. But uh, one thing I remember quite clearly he said to me once that he felt that people had lost the ability to listen. Yeah. And I think it was in a context of poetry readings, so lost the ability to listen to poetry readings. But uh. in hindsight, I think what he meant was something much larger than that, sort of wider. Because what he was always so good at was paying attention. So paying attention to the details in the world. And this, I think, is what lies behind his beautiful imagery. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if they just happen in the moment. You know, they seem so simple, but they're probably a result of decades of walking the world and paying attention to the world. They have that weight behind them. 
Now, we've mentioned about you working with Robin Robertson on the translations. How did that come about? And, uh, you know, I'm really interested in the process. You've mentioned that he likes to call them versions rather than translations. Um, so how did you work together on them? Well, it was a, it was an accident actually that we started this project. So we, we were on holiday on an island in, in the North Sea and it was supposed to be a summer holiday, but it was raining every day for two weeks. Oh, no. uh, and it was, you know, we were storm stayed in this kind of wooden cabin and we had a copy of Tornstumber's poetry. So it started with me doing the literal translations and then reading out the Swedish and sort of noting the pauses and the emphasis where the weight lies in the poems. Yeah. Um, and then Robin would take over from there, and then we would pass the poems back and forth and, and talk about the word choice and uh, tone. and so, on. so what we were aiming for was the experience and the tone and the atmosphere yes. that gave birth to the poem originally. And I think that is what you want to convey in a version. Yes. Uh, not the words themselves, but the experience that gave birth to the poem. Yes, that's brilliantly put. Mm. And, and Thomas was very in favour of translation. He said that we must believe in poetry translation if we want to believe in world literature. Mm. And so he was always positive to this kind of transition of his poems into another language. And, and in a way, I think he also saw, he said in an interview somewhere, that the poem itself is a translation from an inner language. So already it has been, and you must, as a poet, you yeah. must feel this yourself sometimes, that you are actually translating something that comes from within yourself onto the page. Absolutely. It's it's listening to that inner voice and trying mm. to get it. So it, you're right, it is already a translation. Yeah. Um, well, we will get on to uh, some more of the details of this particular poem soon. But first, I think we ought to hear the poem read aloud. And we are very lucky to have it read here by Robin. Um, whose particular versions, as I've said, we are looking at today. Face to face. In February, life stood still. The birds refused to fly, and the soul grated against the landscape as a boat chafes against the jetty where it's moored. The trees were turned away, the snow's depth measured by the stubble poking through. The footprints grew old out on the ice crust. Under a tarpaulin, language was being broken down. Suddenly, something approaches the window. I stop working and look up. The colours blaze. Everything turns around. The earth and I spring at each other. So, Corin, Robin's readings remind me a little bit of Ted Hughes, do you think? I suppose I mean the actual resonance of the voice, the, the physical voice. Oh, I see, yes, yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And we've already mentioned imagery, and I suppose we could say that imagery is one of the things that is usually easy to keep in translation. I'm just wondering if you think that's why Transtremer's poetry has been translated so often. Is it, do you think, partly why his poetry carries so well across languages? Yes, I think. But there's also a kind of simplicity and clarity to his 
actual language um, and the depth. It's like a like the still surface of a lake, and there is this great depth beneath the words yeah. and the language, if you like. So he's often actually been translated by other poets, which I think is significant. Yes, that depth is not easy to translate. I think it would be very hard to do as a non-poet. Yes, and I think harder to do in literal translations as well. Mm, mm. And and so he is translated into 60 languages, which is extraordinary if you think of it. So 60? Uh, he wow. really is a poet of the world. Yeah. Uh, and I read somewhere that he is the most translated poet. Yeah. I'm both surprised <laughs> and not surprised to hear that. <laughs> um, so the images here, I've mentioned the soul as a boat in, in lines three to four, and then the, the trees turning away at the start of the second stanza. Um, I'm assuming that those specific images are all there in the original. Is that, is that right? Yes, you're right. So all the images are there. None of the images have been changed. There's the vocabulary. Yeah. Um, do you also think that there are aspects of the original that can't be retained? I'm thinking of the hinterland behind particular words, for instance, um, you know, the resonances that each word has in its first language that won't carry through to the daughter language. Um, and also, to some extent, the music, the meter, the alliteration, the assonance, mm. the rhyme and so on. Um, because Robin's version here has a lovely music of its own that you find in, in, his, in Robin's own poetry. And my personal preference is for translations that manage that. Yeah, so do you think there are aspects that you have to alter in order to retain, if you like? Yes. Yeah, I mean, so firstly, Swedish has a very small vocabulary compared to, to English. It's a sure. tiny vocabulary. So each word in Swedish can have many depths um, and also carry a certain atmosphere. I suppose all words have this ability, but in Swedish, I think that is even more the case. Mm. So, for example, in that middle stanza, mm. where in English the word ice crust is used, the Swedish word there is skaren, which is a very particular phenomenon where snow melts during the day or thaws and then freezes mm. over at night. Um, so this is the sort of what happens, but then the word itself has quite a cutting, harsh sound to it, which I think actually in this case has been carried over in ice crust, although ice crust is not exactly the same thing technically. Mm. Well, we don't really get that sort of weather phenomenon. Uh, and then the, the, I mentioned before the sort of gloomy vowels, which I yes. think are used consciously in that middle stanza again to create this kind of sense of numbness. Um, yeah, and stuckness maybe. Stuckness, yeah. Where in the English, those sounds are slightly harder, but I think that really works in the English version. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about the broken down language, and it is that sort of falling to pieces rather than the kind of melting away. Yeah. Well, listen, I think it would be really interesting for listeners to hear the music of the original at this point. Uh, and you have been kind enough to agree to read it for us. Um, so here is the poem in Swedish, read by Karin Altenberg. Ansikte mot ansikte. I februari stod levandet still. 
Fåglarna flög inte gärna och själen skavde mot landskapet så som en båt skaver mot bryggan den ligger förtöjd vid. Träden stod vända med ryggen hitåt. Snödjupet mättes av döda strån. Fotspåren åldrades ute på skaren. Under en presenning tynade språket. En dag kom någonting fram till fönstret. Arbetet stannade av. Jag såg upp. Färgerna brann. Allt vände sig om. Marken och jag tog ett språng mot varann. What we were talking about before, the sort of uh, broken down language, I think the, the sort of difference in sound in English is sort of a disintegration, whereas in the Swedish it's a sort of melting away, and they are slightly different tones, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is a good place to move on to the second poem now. Um, will you pronounce it for us in Swedish, please? Ensamhet. Ensamhet. <laughs> so in English, Robin has translated it as solitude. Now I've seen this poem title also translated as loneliness or even alone. Yeah. I mean, for me, solitude would be the obvious, yeah, the only obvious uh, translation there of the title. Okay, interesting. Um, well, we should say that it's a poem in two sections. And each section presents a very different aspect of solitude. In section one, which we'll be discussing here, a man has swerved into the lane of oncoming traffic and we're presented with this near-death experience, um, this moment of sheer terror where the speaker is alone with his own mortality. Um, The second part, which we're not going to look at today because of time, shows us, by contrast, the great value of being alone um, and of choosing to be alone. And the point is made that this choice is a privilege that not everyone gets to enjoy. So as the poem puts it in Robin's version, many people in the world have no choice but to be, quotes, visible to others at all times. Um, so that's the counterweight to this section. And it would be odd not to mention that at least, but I feel that this section very much stands on its own feet, do you think? Yes. And that thing that you just mentioned, that there's the two different ways of being solitary um, or alone, that sort mm. of aspect of anonymity that comes up in these two parts I think it's really interesting it's once sort of disappearing into the crowd um, and being part of something larger than oneself uh, and so in some sense this is offering a great sense of freedom but it is also a kind of paranoia and a, being swallowed up by anonymity can also be a great uh, terror yeah okay well let's have a listen to the poem now Solitude One. I was nearly killed here one night in February. My car shivered and slewed sideways on the ice right across into the other lane. The slur of traffic came at me with their lights. My name, my girls, my job all slipped free and were left behind, smaller and smaller, further and further away. 
I was a nobody, a boy in a playground, suddenly surrounded. The headlights of the oncoming cars bore down on me as I wrestled the wheel through a slick of terror, clear and slippery as egg white. The seconds grew and grew, making more room for me, stretching huge as hospitals. I almost felt that I could rest and take a breath before the crash. Then something caught, some helpful sand or a well-timed gust of wind. The car snapped out of it, swinging back across the road. A signpost shot up and cracked with a sharp clang, spinning away in the darkness. And it was still. I sat back in my seatbelt and watched someone tramp through the whirling snow to see what was left of me. So this is a longer poem. So my plan is to pick just a few things um, and please feel free to chip in and do the same. Um, does that sound OK? Sounds good. Um, so the poem describes the terror of this near-death experience that essentially shrinks the speaker's life and everything in it. Um, so uh, in Robin's version in line five, my name, my girls, my job. Um, yes, there's this very efficient change of scale there where everything that matters kind of slips away. Exactly that, um, yeah. He's kind of reminded of what he's losing at this moment. Yeah, and it, in fact, in the in the English it says further and further away. I was nobody. In the Swedish it says I was anonymous. I was anonymous, right? The loss of self and the loss of name, uh, etc. Yeah. So everything shrinks until all the trappings of the speaker's life fall away, and there he is alone, anonymous, um, as you say, facing his own mortality. And then he's regressed to a boy uh, back in the school playground, um, suddenly surrounded, as Robin's translation puts it. Robin's version doesn't specify what it is that he's surrounded by. Um, I imagined a group of kind of school bullies in the playground, but in a way it doesn't need specifying. Um, okay, so this is very interesting to me because... When I looked at a version of this poem online, I saw that the Swedish word was, as I thought then, fender. And so I looked up the translation of that and, and it, you know, translates as fender. <laughs> but actually, uh, you corrected it and said, actually, it's fiender. Is, is that how it's pronounced? Uh, fiender, yes. So I suppose that's like the English fiend, which would suggest... Well, it's enemies, enemies really. Yeah. So it's surrounded by enemies is the original. And in his little... Um, Thomas wrote um, a short memoir. And in there, he talks about this moment in a school playground where he is surrounded by bullies and how he kind of leaves himself. I can't remember exactly how he describes it, but that kind of sense of leaving yourself there and just going limp in front of your bullies. And he, in the memoir, he then asks, I've done this often in my life, and I wonder how that has affected me and myself as well. So it's a kind of fight or flight, isn't it? Yes, he, yeah. 
yeah uh, and yeah. and again it works really well with that sense of the diminishing scale that not only is it sort of regressing in space everything is falling behind but it's also sort of regression in time towards childhood and the panic of childhood um, when, yes. when we're suddenly faced with the kind of flip side of uh, the beauty of the world the beauty of uh, of life so we begin with the loss of the name and and then regressing into childhood and so you are in a way expelled again from uh, human society uh, yeah you've become a child and therefore uh, without agency Without agency. So I want to talk about that. Um, one of the reasons I like the fact that Robin's version leaves it unspecified as to who it mm. is that um, he's surrounded by is that doing it that way removes the idea of other humans in the poem. So there is yes. just the traffic, there's just mm. the cars. Um, and this is a, a trope that Trans Turmer uses elsewhere in his poetry, traffic as a metaphor for human society. Um, and in fact, there is a poem titled Traffic, isn't there? Yeah. So the traffic as a sort of metaphor for human society. But then there's also Thomas' relationship to machinery, uh, the car in this case. So as a mm. human inside the car, you're sort of safe and singular um, solitary in a way, but you're still part of that flow of the human traffic, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and so you are you are in control, I suppose, of your vehicle and therefore of your life. In control. So related to that, I wanted to ask you about agency and passivity. Um, so in Robin's version, the opening line of this poem is in the passive voice, I was nearly killed here one night in February. While the non-human element, the, mm. the speaker's car, mm. is given agency. And I love this. My car shivered and slewed sideways on the ice. Um, you know, as are the cars on the other side of the highway that came at me uh, with their lights. They're targeting him, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yes. Like the bullies. <laughs> like the bullies, yeah. And, and I think that it is, again, the sort of loss of self here and... So something else takes control. Yes. Nature, perhaps, uh, you know. Yes, yes, in a larger in sense. In a larger yes. sense. Uh, so it has the effect for me of removing all sense of power from the mm. speaker. And then looking at Robin's version. So line nine. The headlights of the oncoming cars bore down on me as I wrestled the wheel through a slick of terror, clear and slippery as egg white clear and slippery as egg white uh, <laughs> what an image is that it's brilliant isn't it <laughs> no it's it's i think one of the best images of terror that i've that yeah. i have read and the sort of oh it's just slipping around isn't it sliding around and you can't you really are so out of control at this point yeah and but egg white in particular i mean there are lots of slippery images that you could have chosen i just wonder whether you know egg as the kind of source of life, mm. in a way. Um, mm. So there's well, that. I think, yeah, yeah, there's that. And also, I think there's a bit of colour going on in this poem. The, the colour white seems to have some kind of presence. But, I mean, that kind of bodily fluid thing. Yes. Uh, I think the whole idea of the primal, um, this is often, I think, what Thomas is wondering at and what he's after, and it terrifies him. And it all goes back to childhood, a sort of primal in nature. 
And of yeah. course, the, the egg is the essence of the primal. Yeah. And then one of my favourite parts of the poem is just after that moment of terror in lines 12 and 13, that moment when the speaker's perception of time alters completely. The seconds grew and grew, making more room for me, stretching huge as hospitals. And then in the next short stanza, time seems to pause completely. I almost felt that I could rest and take a breath before the crash. So these moments of life at the edge are experiences that Transtormer addresses very often in his poems, aren't they? Yes, I mean, so he always takes us right up to the border, doesn't he? Um, Mm. And then, then we stop, the same as in Face to Face that sudden change, but you sort of rest in the moment in a way. And and in this case, I think it's so beautiful that the way time expands suddenly. Um, yes. It's, it's like Eliot's still point of the turning world. Uh, it's somewhere which is, of course, threat, but it's also that kind of limit between threat and calm. And we stop there for a moment. Um, mm. That stretching is done in such a condensed way, or it's such a succinct way. Mm. Stretching huge as hospitals. I mean, those three words, huge as hospitals. I mean, <laughs> time is huge as hospitals. What is a hospital? Well, it's a huge place, a place of paranoia, a place where you might get lost, a place of threat, perhaps, but it's also a place of care, a place where you're being looked after. Yeah, and a place where he might be about to go. Yes. <laughs> Possibly a place of death, yeah. So, yeah. so if that one word carries so much and is brilliantly yeah. used in this metaphor. So in the penultimate stanza, something changes, like that moment in Face to Face um, with a blaze of colour. So he is brought back from the brink of death. Um, in Robin's words, some helpful sand or a well-timed gust of wind. Then... Something caught, some helpful sand or a well-timed gust of wind. The car snapped out of it, swinging back across the road. So the car swings back to the right side of the road, the correct side of the road. And then we get that amazing signpost springing up, again with that sense of agency Mm. and the sound of it cracking. And it feels to me like a... A kind of Chekhovian moment, Um, like that moment when we hear the sound of um, a breaking string Mm -hmm. in the cherry orchard Mm -hmm. and everybody stops what they're doing to listen. Mm. Um, So here we have, you have to pronounce this for me, Enskarp Klang. How do you you pronounce? Enskarp Klang. Yeah, so a sharp clang, I suppose. Yes. And it, it is exactly the same, I think. It, it, there is a, a resonance. So clang is actually, clang in Swedish is um, a word that Thomas uses quite a lot. There's a wonderful composite word that he uses, which is domkyrkoklockklang. Oh, wow. <laughs> which means the sort of peal or the chiming of cathedral bells, or domkyrkoklockklang. Uh, and in a way, I think this sound is, again, we talked about the music behind sort of musical structure almost of his poems. And so here we have that resonance again, something, um, the clang breaks the isolation with a message from another world, if you like. It's it's like those blazing colours. Yes. Um, it's a kind of 
heightening experience, the ultimate here and now. And also it's sort of an uplift, it lifts something up in the air. It is almost a religious image. Again, that sort of epiphany. And physically lift something. So the signpost yeah. goes spinning goes off yeah. into the darkness. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary. And what we get with the clang sound or the blazing of colours, it alleviates us and frees us. So it is very much like music, the way our soul is freed by music. Yes. And then we're left in the silence after the music. Mm. So we are sort of returned to human society. Somebody comes looking for us. Yeah, so that final stanza, all is still. And what I love here is that the driver remains passive, Mm. as he has been all the way through. And Thomas surprises us even here. So we get now a change of viewpoint. We get someone tramping through the snow to look at him to see what was left of me. Um, And we see it through their eyes, through this someone's eyes. And that final phrase feels absolutely loaded with meaning, doesn't it? I mean, given Charles Turmer's interest in self and loss of self, or as you've put it, self and anonymity, could you just say a little bit about that? I was just again looking at, just comparing a word here with the Swedish, so in English, the driver is sat back in his seat belt. In Swedish, it's sela. And sela is a slightly strange word that Thomas has used here because it's also like a child's harness, something you'd attach a child to a pram, for example. Ah. And I think that's probably very consciously used here. So it is still the proportions, the regression and the proportions are still a bit out. And I think, I mean, what, what interests me about this is how small we are in relation to the natural world and how that can be both comforting and reassuring, but it is also threatening and terrifying. Yes, which makes the childhood imagery, the boy in the playground and the the harness at the end there, uh, makes it so effective because we experience that comfort and reassurance alongside this sense of terror often as as children and what i think he's doing is he plays with the self he can expand the self and dissolve the boundary between the self and the world which is in a way what he's doing in this poem uh he talks about in one of the poem uh, he says that each man is a half open door leading to a room for everyone oh yes and i think that's a beautiful image you know, to me, that is one of the greatly comforting aspects of Thomas' poetry is that sense that, you know, you can forget about yourself a bit. Yes. And we only exist in relation to other human beings. It's a very humanistic view of who we are and of the self. Yes. Without connection, we are nothing. Yeah. And and I think that's quite unfashionable now. Uh, and particularly for people who, who grew up on social media, mm. I wonder if they can understand this concept. I hope they can and maybe also find it comforting. But, uh, you know, nowadays it's all about the individual um, and remaining anonymous or sort of being part of a greater uh, humanity is almost seen as disastrous. It's all about individual identity. And selfies. Well, I yeah. think it is high time for a swing back to that sense of connectivity. Mm. And that feeling of being part of a larger whole. 
so when I think of, because I, I am an archaeologist, I think that there's something archaeological about Thomas' poetry. Yes. The way the images kind of explore the human condition, the layers of human existence, and the depths of everything that has come before us. There's this kind of great compassion in the sense of liminality and transcendence, the way we, uh, we transcend across past and present and life and death and, and memory and imagination, which is so important also in his work. And this is sort of, to me, it's this kind of intimate affinity that makes it possible to ignore the confinement of our own bodies. And I find that so relieving. Karin, I think that is a, a brilliant place on which to end. And I feel I should say a special thanks to Thomas Transtreimer's wife, Monica, for giving this project her blessing. Uh, to Robin Robertson for not only allowing us to use his wonderful versions, uh, but reading them for us too. And Karin, above all, thank you so much for giving us this unique and fascinating insight into the world of Thomas Tranströmer's poetics uh, via these two wonderful poems. It really has been a joy to spend time with you discussing them. It's been such a great pleasure, Julia, and thank you for bringing me back to, to these poems again. I read Thomas as often as I can, and I hope that uh, today we've um, introduced perhaps some more people to his poetry. Thank you so much. That was Karen Altenberg in conversation with Julia Copus. You can find out more about Karen on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 449 of Writers Aloud, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.